Hello, everyone. Teddy Tannenbaum here with the latest edition of the Teddy Talk podcast. Today, my guest is Andy Mooney. Andy is currently the CEO of Fender Guitar. Think dream job for him as a longtime collector. Prior to Fender, Andy spent 20 years at Nike and another 11 at the Walt Disney Company. Please settle in as this episode is a master's level course in brand stewardship. One of the themes from early on in Andy's career has been his keen sense to point out what needed to be done and was not being attended to, or what needed to be done differently, and then finding himself slotted in to fill that specific need. Innovation, curiosity, and the raising of pirate flags have all played a part in the evolution of Andy's leadership persona. From his days as chief marketing officer of Nike, twice, to his chairmanship of Disney's consumer products division, Andy's retelling of his leadership journey is a pretty funny as well as inspiring story. Now in the midst of his third act, Andy's enjoying the mentoring phase of leadership, his legacy already imprinted on the consumer products divisions of several major Hollywood studios. All right, let's have at it. Hi, everybody. Teddy Tannenbaum here with another edition of the Teddy Talk podcast. And I am once again delighted to be with an old pal, Andy Mooney, who is the currently CEO of Fender Guitar. Andy and I go back a number of years uh, when Andy transitioned from Nike over to Disney. We spent quite a few years together, and I'd like to say we inspired some people, maybe confused some people, (laughs) maybe a little bit of both. But Andy was kind enough to take some time to sit down with me here today and talk about leadership. Our theme, of course, is meetings with remarkable people, lessons in leadership and life, and Andy's one of those remarkable people. Andy, welcome. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity. Yeah, this is really uh, looking forward. When I first put this together, and I put a a list of people together, you were one of the first people I wrote down, but I got to get a hold of Andy, and it's been a few years since we've seen each other. You you must neither have a lot of good friends or or it's a very short (laughs) list. Very short list, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, as they say, whatever it takes. So I thought we'd start with uh, just give the folks who don't know you a little bit of background, kind of how you grew up in business coming out of school. And uh, I know you grew up in Scotland, so you can just share a little bit of that to start off. Yeah, sure. Grew up in Scotland, wanting to be a professional musician. Um, So decided uh, that I, and I wasn't sure what I wanted to do career-wise. Even though I wanted to be a professional musician, I was not naive enough to think that I didn't need to pay the bills at the same time. So I decided not to go to college and I started working. And when I surveyed the landscape in the UK of who led companies, it was invariably finance folks. So I decided to take finance qualifications uh, and um, align myself with companies that would actually kind of financially help me um, and give me the time to study. So I started with uh, Uniroyal Tire and Rubber out, out of Edinburgh. Then I went to work for a company called Cameron Ironworks uh, when the North Sea was booming. Um, right. Nobody had ever heard of that company until recently when the blowout preventer stacks that they manufactured blew out <laughs> on the, the BP disaster oh, yeah. on, the, on the East Coast. Then uh, I joined 
um, Perkins diesel engines. And so far, I'd, all, I'd worked for three companies that were based in North America, North America and Canada. So I've never, never actually ever worked for a UK company. And lo and behold, every single company was led by a non-finance guy, either, <laughs> either engineers or... So then at the ripe old age of 25, when I was qualified, uh, uh, I was arrogant enough to say I need to find a company that's going to give me a CFO title. And I, I, up to that point, I'd been a small cog in a big finance wheel of an international arm of a, a US-owned company. So the only company that was A, arrogant, A, that was kind of crazy enough to give me that title was a tiny little company called Nike, um, who at the time I think was doing about maybe four or five hundred million in glo global revenues. Wow. So I was CFO, but that meant unloading 40-foot containers once a month when when they got delivered stand, <laughs> standing shoulder to shoulder with the warehouse guys getting orders out at the end of the month. So the, the title wasn't exactly commensurate with what you were expecting? No, and in fact, what I found out, um, you know, I've always believed... For, Throw titles to one side, throw business plans to one side. I've always believed in focusing on the things that will do the most benefit for the company. So what I found was that actually compiling the accounts was the least important part of my job. I had to buy shoes from the parent company six months in advance. So I was like a department store buyer. If I got the buy right, life was good. If I got the buy wrong, life was bad. So I had no knowledge of what to buy. So I spent time on the road with the reps, calling on the dealers, learning about the competition. The running boom was just starting, so I was going to marathon events and talking to people at the end of road races. And I did something that was a little different and always did this a little differently at Nike. I spent time hanging out with the fashionistas, which in the UK at the time happened to be kids of Caribbean descent that were living in Brixton. And they were... Two things emerged from that. One was that the runners were willing to pay twice as much as they were currently paying for shoes that actually benefited them when they ran cushion footwear. And the, the, bricks, the kids in Brixton were buying leather high-cut basketball boots, but nobody was playing basketball in the UK then or now. So I would go into my CEO's office every month and excitedly tell him that we had to buy these higher price shoes and he would try to calm me down and I said, you know, I understand that you think I'm taking a risk here, but I've done my homework. I said, so cut me a little slack here. Let's buy some of these shoes. And by the way, I'll place a side bet with you that I'm more right than you are um, with my own money, like a hundred bucks a month or something. So it took six months for the first bet to pay off, and then I collected 600 bucks over six months from them. And he pulled me in his <laughs> office. And this was a game changer. He pulled him in the office on Friday afternoon, and, and he, he said two things. He, he, he said, one is, we're not going to fight about what to buy anymore. Um, you have full authority to buy whatever you think is right. Um, we're just going to fight about how much you spent. I go, fair enough. He said, the other thing is, what newspapers do you take? And I said, I think the Financial Times, the Observer, maybe? He goes, well, I'm glad I asked because we're advertising your position as CFO this weekend. <laughs> and I'm like, wow. And he goes, no, it's not that you're not doing a decent job as CFO. We just think you're going to be better on the front line on marketing. 
because in my spare time I was signing athletes and uh, you know helping to do some of the marketing because we think you're better served there. And I said, well, how, how long do I have to think about this? And he goes, what don't you understand about us advertising <laughs> your position in, in the Financial Times this weekend? So I was 20, I'd been at the company two years. I was 27 then, and so I moved out of finance that weekend and never moved back. <laughs> so all that, uh, I think you became a chartered accountant is what it's called over there, right? Yeah, cost and management accountant. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's more, I guess, more industrial than the chartered accountants. And then you found yourself in marketing, and your, your marketing experience was that you had done your own homework. That's what you knew. Well, on the marketing side, I was just a raccoon. I like to, I mean, I've always kind of really been curious about what motivates people and, um, and always was interested in translating things that worked into one business and seeing if they could work in another. But a lot of it was back then, and I think even more so now, Phil Knight, you know, really believed that athlete promo was the most important driver for the company and right. he was right then and he's right now absolutely and it was just during the period of the halcyon years of british track and field so there was a moment in time between uh, where every world record from 100 meters to the marathon was run in nike this was about 82 83 so the company was still quite nascent right. but about half of the athletes were british and been signed out of the uk office Sebastian Coe, Steve Cram, Steve Avet. Um, so that caught people's attention. So again, it was Friday afternoon. There must be something with Fridays. I, <laughs> I get the call like, oh, no, we have a position that might interest you in the U.S., product line management. Um, and I go, yeah, I'm interested in that. How long? I was, in, I think, in the U.S. three weeks later and again, never, never, never came back. Never came back, yeah. So that started your career in the U.S. with Nike, and that was up in Beaverton? Yes. Yeah, I was 16, four years in the U.K., 16 years in Beaverton. Wow. And so uh, give us a little overview of what some of the things that you did in, in Beaverton. I'm particularly interested in, in uh, you're smiling already, <laughs> uh, particularly interested in, in the leadership, how, how you grew into a leadership role and what you learned along the way. Well, the Nike environment, then and probably now, I mean, I've been gone from Nike for uh, nearly 20 years too. It was because Phil Knight, Phil Knight at the time I was there, the entire 20 years I was there, held the title of chairman, uh, president, and CEO. He gave up the CEO title a couple of times, but when I was when I left, he had all three titles. But he never really actively participated in the business in the way someone with those titles would. So the company was generally run by a group of people. Um, definitely Mark Parker, who's now the current CEO, a guy called Tom Clark, who I worked for and with many years. Um, I like to think I was kind of in that core. There was usually four or five people, and I was always kind of on a... I was up there, but probably on the... I was five years younger than those guys and, and definitely a level lower than them. But I was generally the one that had the radical ideas, um, but had uh, uh, had the ability to push them through and make them happen. A perfect example was 
I went to Beaverton Mall one day and realized, and I had about 20% share then, and I realized that every single account in the mall was selling the same product line. I, I used to describe it as the post-World War II Coca-Cola model, which is give everybody the same bottle of Coke and stand back and watch them beat the hell out of each other on price. Right. And that was starting to happen with Nike. The lower-end product was getting price promoted, and the dealers were getting disenchanted and, and wanting to find ways to give their open-to-buy to other to other brands. So, again, I, I like to give people who are buying from me exactly what they want. So I, I walked back in. It was a little bit of epiphany for me, and I walked back in and said, well, this is simple. If we want to get to 40% share, all we got to do is we got to give all of these accounts unique product. And everybody in the company absolutely hated that idea. I mean, marketing wanted to market what they wanted to market, production wanted to build, what they wanted to build. And I really believed in this. So I, I said, this is going to make a difference. So I, I set up, it was the first time I set up a pirate's flag in the office and said, well, we're going to start a division that makes custom shoes for these guys. And again, I, I lucked out because right at that time, production was pivoting out of Korea, was getting too expensive. Right. The Marcos regime was in Philippines, so we needed to get out of there. Uh, and all of a sudden, we were going into new factories, particularly mainland China, that were only able to make entry-level product and had no orders to fill them. So I was able to connect the dots and went to production and said, I can solve your problem. If I go to these big accounts, I can get orders of 100,000, 200, 300,000 pairs from them, but here's what I need to get on price. And uh, all of a sudden, that division grew. And I think by the time I left, Special Makeups, as it was called, affectionately called, I think was about 25% of the company's total business. But I understand now it's something like 70 or 80%. Yeah. Started out as a, as a rogue activity and became mainstream. Yeah, it was a, but it was a rogue activity for the, for the right reasons. It wasn't, it wasn't a rogue just to be rogue, it right. was, for me, it was a strategic way to get dealers to give us more open to buy so they didn't have to price compete with each other and they could control their own price destiny. They could price compete, but now they didn't have to do it because somebody else did it in the mall. But in the process, I kind of developed, you know, a bad reputation because all of the other people who were leading these product lines were basically, hey, you know, Andy's just over there selling what I do for less. But I was doing well. <laughs> just, I just had enough money to buy, a, you know, what I described as the poor man's Porsche. It was a 924. I used beat-up 924. I'm driving it to the office the first day. And this guy in a fly yellow Sebring edition of the 924 drew, drew up alongside me. And I'm like, wow, what's that? So I researched it, and you know, it was basically it was a limited edition variation of the car I had, but they were charging $5,000 more. And I said, well, I wonder if that would work for shoes. <laughs> so instead of offering low-priced shoes, I went to the absolute highest price in the line, and I, literally I worked with a designer called Mike Avini, and I said, let's upgrade the upholstery. <laughs> we just changed the leather on the shoes, put a limited edition hang tag on and we were shocked when we sold 40 million dollars of the first collection that we put out uh, so you know again it was just curiosity it was like you know something like this works here in the car business i wonder if it would work in the footwear business 
this was this is actually a through line i know in the time that we spent together innovation was a big thing for you right is there a, is there something new or is there a new way of doing something that we've been doing all along yeah yes and i think that's one way to look at it um but so i've always tried to find a through way between what people want to buy and finding a way to sell them what they buy that's good for the company and good for the brand and the process. It has to be good for the company and yeah, good for the brand. Yeah, it's got to be a win-win. But, you know, a lot of people interpret company more uh, in a way that I used to characterize as business prevention. And I was always into uh, business growth. And, you know, is, is there a way to, you know, to really generate business growth that causes you go, to go through a paradigm shift? And it once made a presentation to a group of entrepreneurs in Scotland and said, basically, every single decent business idea I've had in my entire life got me about this close, super close to getting fired. Um, and that was definitely the case, Some, somewhat the case at Nike, less so, but definitely the case at Disney. Yeah. So <laughs> when uh, at Nike, what was, the, uh, what, what, what was your title role when you kind of hit your peak there? What were you doing? Well, I was chief marketing officer twice. Uh, the first time I was chief marketing officer, it was a it was a line role, and everybody in the world, both product line management, footwear, and apparel, all regions reported to me. The company was six or seven billion by then, and to be honest, the role was too big, possibly for anyone, but it was definitely too big for me. Yeah, and. Uh, uh, at the same time, I had made a presentation to the board about moving into the equipment space, which was a $40 billion wholesale space. It was twice the size of the footwear space, and I felt there was opportunity there. But it was, again, usually highly controversial. A lot of people were very skeptical that anybody could make any money there. So, and I made the presentation. And uh, about two weeks later, Phil walked into my office, as he's sometimes dead, and he, he said, well, the board liked your presentation. I go, good, this is, we're going to do this. I go, great. He says, no, <laughs> you're going to do this, because everybody else in the company thinks this is a really stupid idea, but you're the only one that believes in it, so you're the only one that can make it work. Right. So this is a theme we've already heard here, right? You present an idea, someone says, eh, that's not going to fly, and then uh, you end up being the one to do it, and... That six hundred dollars a month that you were making back in in the UK started to uh, quadruple. I bet. Yeah, in that case, I literally set up the pirate's flag off the campus. Yeah. Um, and you know, we like again, I got a huge, huge, huge pieces of learning in the process of setting that up because we wanted to, to do things that we thought were difficult and that would be skeptical skeptically viewed within the company. Right. So like eyewear and timing. Um, and then I, I thought, well, I'll do things that are really easy, like baseball gloves. You know, the brands that were in there, like Franklin and Rollins, and I'm not talking about Mets even, they're complicated, but gloves, batter's gloves, they were easy. I felt we could at least do product that was good as those brands. Uh, and I was arrogantly, again, I thought, well, we'll get 20% share. So we, we did the timing, and the timing proved to be much more complicated than I thought because there's only five companies in the world that make watch movements, and none of them make custom watch movements. So I literally had to go to uh, Seiko's headquarters and convince 
Mr. Seiko to design a custom digital movement for us, but it pushed the price point of the watch up to 120 bucks. But it was a truly innovative watch. It was canted off the wrist, oversized digits. Um, it was truly a watch that was designed with the functional needs of a runner in there. And I said, hey, we've got to do this. That People will pay this. Because the prevailing price point for a digital watch, G-Force, G-Force was the most expensive at 60 bucks. Wow. The Ironman was 40. So we were going out 100, 100 120. <laughs> we went out the first year, we sold a million units, and we won Design of the Decade of the award. So that... Uh, kind of put us on the map with the skeptics that were on the company, but the more, the, for me, the more the more interesting learning was the baseball gloves. So after the first year, I said, "Well, what type of market share do we have?" And it was two percent. I go, "What did we do wrong that we only got two percent share?" And we're, we were kind of going through a group of people in the room were debating it, and then out of the blue, I said, "What percentage of the MLB rosters using our glove?" I did the math. It was two percent. I go, you know, I've never looked at it that way before. Can we go through all of the categories at Nike and correlate the market share of that category to the percentage of the professional or the NCAA roster wearing a product? And the, the correlation was shockingly one-to-one. So fell all the way back to the very origins of the company was fundamentally right. It wasn't about the advertising in the end. It was about what percentage of the professional roster was wearing your product. And in Nike's case, whether it's, athlete, whether it's amateur or college rather that, and pro, they paid for every one of those endorsements. But they built the moat that on the footwear side, when, you know, I, I don't think Under Armour or Adidas or any anybody else will ever challenge them as long as that that moat remains remains high. And that was the big piece of learning. It was like, okay, a product is actually fine. We just need to go sign more athletes, and we did, and yeah. we got to, we got to share. From the public's perspective, Nike invented sports marketing. I mean, really changed the game when they started signing athletes. Well. That might be the public's perception, but Adi Dassler started it. It's just that filled in more of it and spent more money. And, you know, that was the other one of the unique things about Nike. I mean, I remember one year, Phil had this relationship with um, Howard Slusher. Howard was was the agent that held out Randy White um, from America's Dream Team at the time. And uh, Phil got tired of sitting on the other end of the negotiating table with them. So in the end, he hired them. And Howard said, well, that's fine, but I want to be paid the same as I'm, get, I'm earning now as an agent, which was much more than anybody else was earning, and I only want to work for you ever. Which that, that um, partnership uh, sustained for ages. In fact, Howard's son now runs sports marketing at Nike. But they would do the deals. Yeah. And again, one morning, Phil walked into my office and said, well, I signed Brazil. I go... How much? He goes, 100 million. I go, really? He goes, yeah, but it's over 10 years. It's only 10 million a year. I, I go, I don't have 10 million in my budget. He goes, it's not your budget. It's my budget. It's my company. <laughs> I go, okay, All right. we'll, fi- <laughs> we'll find a way. We'll find a way to make it work. And, you know, that's how a lot of those bigger deals with the bigger teams and the bigger athletes. Phil had, um, he, he really believed in sports marketing and he was right. He, uh, was willing to invest for the long run, and he was right. 
Uh, and even though it was a public company, he always had 70% of the voting stock and he was willing to weather the storms yeah. to do the right thing for the long run. And he had tremendous courage. Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, it sounds like quite an adventure at Nike. I remember when I, when I did some work there, equipment was just about $2 billion and apparel was four, and I think shoes were eight at that time. Yeah, well, the, one of the strange things, when I, you asked me, I didn't quite answer, fully answer your first question, so I was CMO in the line position, and then I went to run equipment. I came back in as CMO, I literally came back in, back into the campus as CMO. But I also was running apparel as well as being CMO, and Phil had kind of said to me, you should, you know, you, you should be recruiting for a CMO or, and or a head of, head of apparel. And I go, okay, but what am, well, what what am, am I, I going to do? do? <laughs> and, you know, that, I'd been at the company 20 years and I was starting to kind of muse about my own, my own future. And I, I one of the things, <laughs> one of the things I found in the process of trying to recruit these people was that they were getting paid a lot more money than I was. <laughs> So <laughs> that caused me to go back in a film, and I said, Phil, is, I go look at it. Well, actually, I went to Tom Clark, who I worked for, and Tom was, he said, he, Tom said, I think I'm paid fine. He said, if you think you're not paid well, you should go talk to Phil about it. So I went in and I talked to Phil about it, and I, I said, here's the data. He goes, he said, I have no perspective about whether you're not paid well or not. I said, go talk to Clark about it. I go, well, he told me to talk to you. I said, so here's what I think is a reasonable salary for me. And it was significantly higher than what I was getting right now. And he goes, okay. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> Courage on all levels. Yeah, but the, you know, the, the, the subset of that conversation at that time was, because I, 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 again, he was holding all three titles. And, and Tom was COO, but functioning as a quasi-CEO. Mark was a peer to him running design. And I said, do you ever intend to kind of formalize the reporting structure? And actually have a you know an executive CEO, and he goes, it's not he goes no, it's not really a priority for me right now. I said, I was always paranoid about where the next tranche of growth was going to come from, which caused me to make the, caused me to think about makeups, caused me to think about um, equipment. I said, you know, I think we're kind of getting to the end of the road here, Phil. Or, you know, I'm not sure how much growth is available with the Nike brand. We're market share leader in every category. The market is going to continue to grow, but if you really want to keep people um, motivated and growing, I said, you may want to consider acquisition. And he, he was like, no, I, I just not. So, you know, around about the time I'd had that conversation with them, um, was when the phone rang from Disney. From Disney. And I thought, well, it's been a great 20 years here, but, uh, uh, you know, I've heard from the founder that that's not really what he wants to do. <laughs> it's, you know, it's not ironic. It's just, it, it's got, you know, it's gone from t 10 when I left to 30. I think now they made some major acquisitions with Converse right. being the... Of course. And the, the structure is completely formalized right. <laughs> so <laughs> you're just slightly ahead of your time uh, yeah yeah but you know I I, I I loved every moment I was there and I have no, no regrets moving on to Disney and that was a whole different experience yeah so uh, we'll get into the Disney thing in a minute it's it was uh, <laughs> it was quite a ride curious just leadership wise when you reflect on the Nike years and the different roles you had 
What were some of the key leadership lessons that you personally learned in, on your path? Well, I've, I've always said to people that, uh, in my view, the biggest limiting factor for people realizing their potential is fear. And I, I, you know, I was I was fearless. I always advocated for what I believed was the right thing, and with the right thing in my mind being what was good for the business. Sometimes that was totally politically incorrect. Um, even the idea was incorrect, and there was a lot of that at Disney. But then, you know, my delivery could have been greatly improved too because my style of communication back then was much more abrupt and aggressive than, than I would say it is now. So you, you get those two things in combination. And I was very lucky to have a couple of people around me and Tom Clark and Mark Parker who kind of saw value in me. They, they would say, hey... If there's a loose ball, Andy's going to get to it first. That's right. That's um, exactly right. But they they were willing to put up with all of my rough edges um, during the, all the time all the time I was there, and you know. Uh, so I, th this idea of fear is there's there's lots of fears out there in leadership. There's fear of failure for sure. Some people have fear of success. Uh, some people have fear of embarrassment, right? The flip side of fear to me is courage, right? Is recognizing that there's a lot of unknowns here and willing to proceed anyway. Yeah, I mean, uh, p personally, I've never had any fear of failure. Uh, and I have failed multiple times. But I always viewed every failure as just a learning lesson. As, again, one of Phil's maxim was, F f failure was only bad if you didn't learn from it and fess up to it. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, you got to own it. You got you got to own it. Yeah. You got to learn from it and not and not repeat the same mistake. If you repeat the same mistake, then that's that's a bad a bad yeah, sign. You, but you didn't you didn't learn from it then. Right. But um, what I've also said to people is that they have to be willing to live with the consequences of whether you express it as fear or courage, because I think it is is somewhat the same thing is there can be some downsides to doing it because there are other people who like to live in the safe pocket of, you know, keeping your head down in the meetings, not really seeing what's on your mind, even when you know that the person above you is completely off the rocker. <laughs> um, that some people that's more important that they, you know they take the paycheck home and that they they, they support the family. That's yeah. their decision to make. I don't fault anybody for doing that. The flip side of the coin is if you want to move up in the organization, you've got to take some risk somewhere somewhere along the line. It's almost like there's an imaginary line here. And some people, and the goal is to be as right on that line, on that narrow edge. Some people will run up as fast as they can and stop just short of it for fear of crossing it. Other people will go as fast as they can, go over it and hold on to it <laughs> so they don't go too far over it, yeah. right? Yeah. It's different yeah. styles. Yeah, I mean, I think the... One of the great things I really loved about Nike, because I'm, I'm fortunate that I have Bob Wood on my board here at Fender, and Bob and I are kindred spirits in terms of uh, kind of for us stylistically. Um, and when we reminisce about our days there, because Bob is retired from Nike too, you know, it, I always viewed it as a, a crucible of high intellect people who were 
absolutely willing to, to tear each other's ideas down, but n- never, enc- never enticed to tear each other personally down. Right. So it was a meritocracy of ideas. There was, you know, it, it, it would be incorrect to say by the time it got to 10 million, it wasn't a political organization. Organizations that size are inevitably political. But in the scheme of organizations that size, I think it was largely apolitical and idea-based. And the competitive energy that existed in that company was almost singularly uh, external. So you were waking up every morning and putting putting your armor on, as I described it, to beat Adidas and to beat Reebok and you know now to beat Under Armour. You weren't, you know, marketing wasn't waking up in the morning to kill design or design to kill production. That uh, that was that was completely counterproductive. There was uh, a common enemy. Common enemy, highly competitive individuals, uh, very free to speak their mind. And again, part of that was an offshoot of Phil's lack of formality in the structure. Right is that design was always a peer to marketing. So if design thought the marketing had a bad idea, they would just say it out loud and vice versa. And as long as, the, as, long as it was done in the spirit, in a, in a respectful and spirited way, it, it was healthy. And it, was, it wasn't always healthy, but it was largely very healthy f- yeah. for the 20 years I was there. Yeah, it was, it's mining for and managing ideological conflict not personal conflict. Yeah. Right. And I remember, yeah. I remember at Disney, one of the things when I first met you there, one of your kind of non negotiables to the team was silence is consent. Yeah. Right. If you have an idea, if you're thinking of something, you got to say it out loud. Otherwise, we're going to miss a, a, an opportunity and you're going to be operating differently than everybody else internally. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, one, I mean, some of the basic stuff I learned almost my first couple of weeks there. So we'd have a staff meeting and we had a time for the staff meeting and I would show up for the staff meeting. And what, what I found was happening because my predecessor was kind of not particularly punctual. That all of, all of the admins were calling each other to say, he's left the, he's left the building, he's going to be there. And it was almost like we ha- they had to go through this this learning period where oh wow when he says the meetings are going to start at start at one o'clock they start at one o'clock, and then when we got into the meetings everybody was sitting for me to proclaim, you know, um, what was going to happen, and I, I didn't know anything about that particular business. And what I wanted to do was to engage the team in a conversation about it. And it took, it took a good six months, if not a year, to really get the group comfortable that they were not, um, they were not making themselves vulnerable in the process or, or something bad was going to happen to right. them in the, in the process. But once you unlocked that kind of energy and contribution from the group, life was good. But it was, it was a, <laughs> somebody once said, that, um, you know, most organizations tend to be hierarchical. Disney was not hierarchical. Disney was imperial. All right. <laughs> um, I, I thought that was a very, very apt uh, description. Indeed. So, so you were recruited to go to Disney to uh, run the consumer products division, which had a, a number of different business units in it. I remember those early days when you got there. I remember 
you talking about showing up at a meeting at nine o'clock and no one being there. And then everyone starts to walk in and saw, oh, oh, Andy's here. And that, that changed pretty quickly. And I think also the flip side was the meeting was scheduled less than an hour. At 10 o'clock, you got up to leave. Yeah, right. right? Yeah. <laughs> but they had no sense of time was fungible at that point. Yeah, well, right. one of the things I've always prided myself in is, you know, I like to, if the day starts at nine, I start at nine, and if the day ends at five, it's, I end at five, and then I go home and spend time with my family, or I do what I do. Again, I think a lot of times people spend too much time at the office because they're fearful that they're going to miss out or they're going to be viewed negatively, and I've always kind of said, hey, as long as we have people working on the right things, right. nine to five is plenty of time. Yeah, it's all about working on the right things. Yeah. I, I get it. So at Disney, it was a turnaround. Yeah, the division, uh, consumer products, uh, uh, was the revenues had declined something like 20% per annum for about three years before before I joined. So it was very much a turnaround. Yeah. So what was, the, uh, what was your assessment? I, I remember in those days, you came to all the off-sites and all the off-site meetings and just, you listened right? People wanted your opinion, but you were just listening, asking questions, gathering information. Curious, what was your, what was your sense of the, uh, the direction of the company, what needed to change, and also of the, of the leadership that, required, that would be required to do that? Well, um, there were, the, you know, the consumer products was made up of uh, actually very different subsets. The, the licensing division, which was the cash machine, that was in serious decline. Uh, and again, when I was doing my due diligence coming in, I thought, you know, then, well, that's the, that's the part I can really, I could really bring some value to, and it's super high margin. So I think there's some upside there. Then there was the Disney Store side, and uh, I grossly miscalculated how bad that uh, business was in. Um, and that, that's a whole other story which I can share with you now if you'd mm -hmm. like. One of the, the techniques I use when I'm working with new teams is try to find common ground of something that they agree on. And uh, so when we had our first strategic offsite, probably, probably in the first month or so, to try to develop the strategic plan for the company that I was going to take back to Michael Eisner, who I, who I reported to at that time, um, we were like really, really struggling for an idea. And this was before my now 12-year-old daughter was born. But, uh, you know, sitting around the table, this notion of princess came up. Uh, it was a tiny, tiny business. It was something like a 50 million retail or 100 million retail business. Um, but it was the only thing that people kind of like around the table going, yeah, we think there's something there, but we can't do it. We can't do it. And I wasn't sure why we, why they were saying that, but it was so small and I, I, it wasn't something that I'm, it particularly struck me as a big idea. So then I went to, um, in part of my onboarding, I went to a Disney and Ice show in the middle of the desert for some reason. And again because it was imperial and I was you know one of the senior executives we go there in the corporate jet and I'm getting shepherded into the VIP area and I go no I don't want to do that I, I want to go in the corporate jet I'm not right. passing down <laughs> but I'm um, I want to stand in line with the rest of the folks because I want to understand get a better sense of who's coming to this and why 
So I'm, I'm in line waiting with these mothers and daughters primarily, and a lot of them are dressed in head to toe in Princess Regalia. And I'm asking them, well, where did you buy that? And they said, we didn't. We had to literally sew this, make, this, make, it. make it ourselves. And I go, well, were we to offer this available to sale for you, would you be interested in buying it? And they, they were literally, we would buy lots. <laughs> So I got on the plane, I rushed back into the office, and I gathered the team back up again. I said, I get it now, I get it. So let's do Princess. And they said, you realize you're going to get killed. I go, why? I said, well, you can't have characters from the two movies on the same plane. I go, that is ridiculous. <laughs> so I said, let's develop a brand plan, let's develop a, um, a signature look. We, we literally even debated the color of Pantone we were going to use for the branding, which color of pink we were going to use. We get all you know that developed together. We push it out to the licensees, and the licensees were all over it. And we went from you know a hundred a hundred million to like a billion in twelve months. And it, then it caught the eye of Roy Disney, who was <laughs> livid, I mean, absolutely livid. It was, it was reality distortion for him. He he truly believed you know, to to his. Um, to be fair to him, he truly believed it would erode the mythology of the stories that the studio had told and that somehow people would stop buying the DVDs. Uh, and I kept reminding him, I said, you know, the DVDs are in the vault, so they only come out once every seven, seven, seven years. These girls go through this phase for about two years. Some of them will never even see the DVDs before they're through this phase. And I said, I believe they'll buy more and not less. And he was adamantly opposed to it, took it to Michael Eisner. And again, I was very fortunate that Michael Eisner and Bob Iger at that time took my side over his, which actually was, I'm sure there's multiple reasons way beyond that, but it was part of the rift. That That's we, right, that, precipitated some of that. So um, it worked. <laughs> yeah, in a big way. Uh, you know, it, it worked. And it worked not just for the consumer products division, um, but it worked for... Uh, the studio, because we ended up selling more more DVDs. Um, so when we would launch, when the studio would launch a DVD, we would get licensees to support whatever that launch was, and we, we, we all ended up making, because the DVD business back then was a very high margin business. So it, it was good all around, and eventually, you know, it, it, it helped uh, solidify the importance of franchise management at, at the company. But the other interesting thing I learned, um, because there's a corollary to this story, because when I joined the company, uh, I worked exclusively for Michael Eisner, as everybody did. Um, there was no COO, and I interviewed with a dozen people. A week after I joined, uh, Bob Iger was appointed COO, and it was described to everyone that everyone was now a dual report to Michael and Bob. I had never met Bob. So I was a little bit nervous in my first week about, well, maybe this is not gonna work. Um, but actually, you know, we had, we had a you know, very good conversation and he said to me, he said, is there anything that surprised you coming from Nike? And I, I said, no permission to speak freely, <laughs> sir. And I said, yeah, well, I said two things. I said, I, you know, I'm, I left a 30, well, that time, a $10 billion company in Portland, Oregon, um, to join a $30 billion company in LA. I thought this place would be head and shoulders above the place I left. I said, it's not. 
Um, and I said, the other thing is 80% of my revenues are coming from two properties, Mickey Mouse and Winnie the Pooh, and there is absolutely no plan in the company to manage these franchises. I, I go, I'm totally shocked at that. Um, I said, there's things happening across the company, but there's absolutely no coordination of it. And uh, I said, I have a publishing division that produces 750 million books and magazines a year for kids. I asked the leader of that division, how many new, uh, how much new IP have you created in the last 50 years? And the answer was none. And I said, well, how is that possible? And he said, we're not allowed to. I, I go, explain that to me. He said, well, the studio doesn't allow us. The studio creates stories. We exploit them. I go, well, what if you created a story that worked in publishing that they could then exploit? They said, we're not allowed to. Roy will not allow that to happen. So again, I had this conversation with Bob. I said, you've got Disney Channel not allowed to create any new intellectual property. You've got Disney Publishing not allowed to create any new intellectual property. You've got Disney Gaming, which was in consumer products at the time, not allowed to create any intellectual property. You should cut them all loose. You should let them develop their own thing. They'll either succeed or fail in their medium, but if it works in their medium, there's a chance it could migrate into the other the other mediums. And he goes, well, you should do that. I go, you realize I'm going to, he goes. Ruffle some feathers. He goes, do it. And we did it. And we created a couple of first successful concept was a concept called Witch that we did out of Italy and then we, you know, we created a, a, a bunch of new contents, but you know, big, the big winner in that decision, which Bob Iger, again to his credit, was a big political risk for him. When he when he joined the COO, Disney Channel was not creating any of his own animation. It was done over the studio. It it wasn't working. The studio thought that the folks in Disney Channel were the ones that were the problem. The folks at the Disney Channel were saying this content's not suitable for television. And Bob took the television content away from the Disney Channel, away from the, the studio, studio yes. put it to, and then encouraged them to do live action. And, you know, out of that came, when Rich Ross was there, out of right. that came properties like Lizzie McGuire or um, um, with uh, Miley Cyrus. Hannah Montana. Hannah Montana. I mean, these were massive yeah. um, high school I mean, these were massive, massive yeah. properties that were beneficial for the entire company. Right. It was a game changer, mm -hmm. right? And what it took was some innovative thinking. Yeah, for me, coming in call from the outside, it was clear that the company needed franchise management. Right. Uh, Bob was convinced of that. So he, he, at this very first meeting, he said, well, you should lead that process. And I, I said, Bob, no one's going to listen to me. I said, right. the only person who they'll listen to is you. Uh, and, you know, at the time he said, well, they might not even listen to me, but let's let's actually set up the process and we'll get it going. And he led the franchise management process. And now I would say it's a, it's a franchise-led company. Yes. Um, and he's done a wonderful job of acquiring the franchises and developing the franchises uh, that exist at the company. Yeah. It was an extraordinary turnaround, actually. And when Bob uh, took over from Michael Eisner and he repaired the relationship with... Uh, with, with Walt Pixar. Disney and with Pixar and Steve Jobs and, and everything. It was it was a game changer. And then the Marvel acquisition. Yeah, I mean, the acquisitions, if you look at the three acquisitions, you know, P P Pixar, Lucas, and Marvel, um, 
absolutely the right acquisitions. I don't think anybody would have got those deals done other than Bob. Yeah. And uh, they've all proved to be, even though a lot of them were second-guessed in terms of the price that he paid at the time, particularly the Pixar acquisition, they've all absolutely paid dividends for the company. Yeah. So let's talk a little about uh, your experience. You were at Disney for about 10 years? 11, 11 years. 11 years. So in that time, you transformed the licensing model. Tell us a little about what, what, is, what was it when you got in there and what did you see that needed to be done and, and how you brought the team together to do that? Yeah, so you know, I'd come from, <clears throat> of the 20 years I was at Nike, 16 years of it, uh, you know, I was in the bills of product line management. And you know, one of the things that, that I fundamentally believe in is that you know, great, great companies are the cumulative effect of great products. So the licensing model was a really fascinating model to me because we had a very significant and very qualified creative department that basically policed the work of these very skilled licensees. But all they were really doing was making sure that Mickey's shorts were the right Pantone color. <laughs> they weren't looking at these products and going, is this going to sell in the marketplace? So there was not a lot of value to add coming from the creative group at Disney and the licensees were perpetually frustrated because they were sending their submissions and they were getting tweaked. The process was long, it was arduous and often at times the creative group were making decisions that weren't necessarily the right decisions in terms of making the product more saleable. The whole company was focused on, on licensing division was focused on deal making. It was like, let's get the royalty rates up, let's get the minimum guarantees up. I termed that passive licensing. You know, you were focusing on the deal, uh, policing the creative work of the licensee and waiting for the checks to come in over the threshold. So we couldn't create any intellectual property. So we're completely relying upon the studio creating intellectual property. We couldn't create products. Right. So it wasn't a surprise to me that the revenues had declined. So I felt that we needed to change the model. We needed to go from what I called passive licensing to active licensing. So I broke the licensing division down in a subset. So I created a toy team, an apparel team, a hardlines team, which you know affectionately was called everything else. But the toy team was then staffed with people who came from the toy industry right. and they had toy creative groups. And instead of policing the work of the licensees, particularly the bigger licensees like Mattel, you'd be sitting down with them and developing product ideas. And that sped up the process. It wasn't their ideas and our ideas, it was our, it was our ideas. So um, it sped up the process. We were starting to get the teams more engaged in what the competitive set was in the businesses. Coming to the licensees with with suggestions about well we think there's an opportunity here if we develop this less concerned about the royalty, and that suited the licensees better. They felt that we were actually focusing on the right thing. So the licensing business just took off. You, you know, coupled with the IP that we created, um, the, the IP that we created in house, particularly Princess, but also uh, Pixar you know, landed a home run for us with cars. Because when you look at the two fundamental play patterns for boys and girls, vehicles for boys, fantasy role-playing dress-up for girls, you had two properties that absolutely uh, fit the bill. And so we were able to take 
the new process we had and leveraged that across these two properties that we'd either created or, or had um, benefited from in the case of Pixar and, and really developed on the big businesses. The Disney store was a much more difficult assignment, much yeah. more difficult. <clears throat> and that was, uh, I think at that time, there were well over 600 doors in the U.S. alone. Yeah. So uh, sales were not up to, up to snuff. Well, the, the original, one of the things that I, that I, again, I learned through this exercise is that in North America, there's probably only about 250 good locations, period. And I would define a good location as being, you know, on the right, on the right high street or on the 50-yard right in the light, right mall. Um, so Disney built 250 great stores, and it was a nice, profitable, brand-enhancing business. And uh, the company, Michael, was, was as much a growth hound as I was. So he was pushing, you know, his team for growth. The, the Disney store group before I joined um, experimented with uh, the first 250 stores were about 3,000 square feet. The second experiments that did about six stores were 6,000 square feet. And they, the incremental footage was filled with adult apparel. Right at the time when most Americans kind of woke up one morning surprisingly and thought it was sexy to buy sweatshirts and t-shirts with Mickey Mouse. Mickey Mouse on them. It was the same time of mine. I was in Nike at the time. It was the same time they thought it was sexy to wake up and wear a sweatshirt with Green Bay Packers on. Or, so the licensed products business in Imprintables was going to the moon. Right. So these six stores that they opened were unbelievably successful. So that got extrapolated into let's buy a thousand and let's build a thousand and go global. So by the time I joined, uh, they had gone global. It was stores throughout Europe, Australia, Japan. Right. Uh, that tr in North America, that trend lasted about a year. So all of the unprofitable stores were the ones that had the longest leases on, were the biggest format, and they were in the suboptimal locations. Bad recipe. Yeah. So when I kind of looked at, well, how do we solve this? Which was a much more, much more difficult solve. The Disney store was a separate legal entity, and I went to Michael and said, I, I hate to say this, but you should go Chapter 11 on this. You should close the whole thing. And uh, he goes, that's unacceptable. I can't, I can't do that. It's be too big of a brand hit. And I go, okay. I said, I understand. I said, so what's the other solution? He said, the only other solution, I said, is you had to atrophy the store, count back down, and negotiate year in and year out with the landlord. I said, but that's an ugly business. It'll take years, and you'll lose a ton of money in the process. Yeah. And he goes, well, that's what we're going to do. Ooh. And I, I go, it's also going to be demotivating because instead of coming in every morning and seeing a thermometer where you're adding a store, you're going to be coming in every morning. I go, it's going to be pretty demotivating and deleveraging fixed cost base. I go, but I understand, so we'll do it. So we did it, and we just got to the point where we were to break even. And uh, Michael had gone by then. Bob Iger always hated the retail business. Right. So Bob, who was now CEO, said, I want out of this business. And I, I go, okay, um, how do you want to do that? We have all of these leases. And he, he goes, we'll sell them. And I, I said, well, who's going to buy a company that's break even where you don't own the, own the brand and um, 
I assume you're going to want to charge a royalty. And he goes, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and I, I go, I said, I don't think I can sell them. And he goes, that's okay. We're going to give it to strategic planning to sell. I go, okay. So strategic planning in the, in the end sold them to children's place. But they didn't actually sell them because they got no cash and they deferred the royalty for two years. So on the day the first royalty payment was due to be made, um, they went chapter 11, um, which actually created an opportunity for Disney because um, by the... It looks really elegant in the rearview mirror. Right. By by this time, uh, Disney had bought Pixar. We were actually up at Pixar's headquarters and we were were having... Bob and I were having a debate. Bob still... Bob didn't really want to buy them. Um, Possibly find another licensee or or do something differently and... I felt that now was the perfect time to buy them because now we could right-size the portfolio and actually make money out of it. And, oh, by the way, we've got more intellectual property to sell in the store than we ever had when we when we last owned them. Uh, we were having a knockdown drag-out, and I was getting beat up terribly by Steve Jobs. and, and uh, I remember this really well. <laughs> yes, Steve, Steve and John Lasseter up in their headquarters. And it turned, Steve turned... T- to me, really aggressively, and said, "Why the why the hell did you science sell the Disney store? Uh, that's a you know really stupid idea." And Bob, to his credit, stepped up right away and he goes, "He didn't want to sell them. I did." So he took you know he took, took the, the he took the hit, and he turned to turned to Bob and he said, "You should own these stores." Um, and he said, "Because you can't." Anybody else that you would sell them to, their interests are not going to be aligned with your interests. So you know, Bob took that to heart, and so we bought them out of bankruptcy, and uh, we got the right amount of stores, and they were instantly profitable. Yeah. And I assume they continue to be so today. But it was a, it was a long and winding road. Yeah, it was quite a, quite an odyssey. <laughs> uh, I remember one of the things that that we used to discuss was in terms of your leadership style at the time. You once said to me, you know, my job is to get the right people on the bus. And you can, you know, you can hire, you can hire people to do everything. You can, you can hire someone to do anything except hire the right people. And right. that was your whole thing was like, I guess the right people on the bus and then let them do their thing. Right. And then I remember at one point, so you had all these folks on your senior team, really smart, really competitive. And out, whether it was apparel or it was children's publishing in New York, or it was uh, games, interactive video games, or it was the hard lines of food, health, and beauty, consumer electronics, really crushing it. And then it was like, well, they started competing with each other for booking the revenue. Right. And I'm just curious, talk to talk to a little about how you resolve that from a leadership point of view. Yeah, well, uh, as we talked a little bit earlier, I, th- I enjoyed my time at Nike because the competitive was all externally oriented. The studio system is inherently internally oriented. People are kind of fighting with each other for, for turf. And I, it's the last thing I wanted to see happen in my own division. So that whenever there was a scenario where there was a jump ball on who should be licensing the reven- revenue, we, we set up Project Solomon where I, I, I go, I don't want these discussions to fester. They said, you're immediately going to come in to my office, state your case, and I will, I will adjudicate 
<laughs> on the spot uh, and then we'll move on and let's not second guess it. So it was just a simple kind of tactical way yeah. to, to keep, you know, to, to keep the group. The loser never liked the decision, but they weren't always a loser. I mean, the, the jump ball could go either way depending on, on, on the case it was right. made. But it was just, just a way to keep positive yeah. energy in the, in the group. The, the, what, I, what I recall from that time was the not letting it fester. Right. Right. If there's something that's getting in the way of us all being successful, let's attend to it right here, right now. Correct. And that that was a big thing, and that sent a message throughout the entire organization that we, you know, and, and that I believe the division at that time had a reputation within the whole company as getting after the work. Right. There was no there were no window seats or Aloha suites going on here. It's like we're getting after the work, and and we're going to monetize this IP as best we can. And I think also what you did in terms of creating IP and. Uh, that was that was really a brilliant turnaround. In fact, and uh, just you know a shameless plug for you. I remember when Licensing Magazine uh, had had a big picture on the cover and said, "This man has changed the face of licensing." Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's funny. I had uh, I had lunch with Bruce Morris. Now, if you remember, sure. I remember Bruce. He, he works for a company who is a licensee of ours, uh, Fender. He's the licensee of Disney, Warner Brothers, Fox. They're in the poster business, and he, he said he, he said I just came in early. I did the tour. He said every single studio is run by an ex DCP. Every said every single one other than Disney. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm it's, it's, it's what we talked about earlier. Is yeah. I wanted I really wanted to kind of develop those folks so that they could realize their own potential. Right. So to have, you know, Pam Lifford over Warner Brothers or Jim Fielding over at Fox, Vince Glacius over at Universal. It's just, it's just great to see. Yeah, this is, you know, this is really fantastic. Uh, I did a podcast with Pam not too long ago. It hasn't been published yet. And it's just great to see her in her role. And now, you know, she's the first African-American woman to run a division at Warner in 115 years. Yeah. This is, you know. Yeah, and I, I had lunch over at their, you know, their equivalent, the Rotunda and the Watlock. She's, she's, the queen of her she's domain. A rock star, she's a star, right? She's, absolutely. She's doing a great job and yeah. totally, totally enmeshed in that organization. It's yeah. great to see. This is a wonderful legacy, right? All these folks. And the irony is, except at Disney. <laughs> yeah. But that's, you know, who's appreciating their own hometown, right? <laughs> yeah. You have to go elsewhere. So third act, now you're at Fender. And uh, what drew you here? I know you <laughs> wanted to be in a band. Is this the, you get a chance to play with all these cool guitars? No, I mean, when, uh, when I left Disney, I said, you know, now is the time to become a CEO. Right. And uh, uh, I was approached to become CEO of Fender, but um, my daughter was five at the time. Fender were in Scottsdale, Arizona. Um, and uh, I was kind of interested in going there because my daughter being five and, and us coming to the end of 11 years in L.A., my wife and I were like, okay, we'll see what's on the CEO horizon and we'll go, we'll go live wherever it takes us. So um, when my daughter was uh, within months of me leaving Disney, was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. So my wife and I said, no, we better, we should, we're going to hunker down in L.A. And uh, uh, we'll, you know, it's, no, it's no hardship. Uh, I, I will, I'll do whatever work that is done, done in L.A. So I spent, about a, I spent about a year doing consultancy work in L.A., 
DreamWorks, NBC, a whole, whole bunch of different, different companies, Live Nation, which I really enjoyed. Uh, and, you know, then I wandered off into the desert for a couple of years right. with Quick, Quicksilver, right. uh, and that, that didn't work out too well. And then, literally, the day I left Quicksilver, I got a call, and even during the time I was at Quicksilver, I got a call to, to join Fender, and I said, I, no, I can't do this, I'm committed, I've, I've encouraged a few people to come in here, I've got to stand with them. And so the day, the day I leave Quicksilver, I get a call, and, you know, would you consider becoming CEO of Fender? And I said, of course, but you're still in Scottsdale, my daughter still has type 1 diabetes, and I'm still committed to L.A., and they said, well, funny you should say that because we're really interested in building a digital organization. So we've taken a lease on a property on Sunset and Gower and we've Googled your home um, <laughs> and it, we, it's a 15-minute drive. And I go, I'm in. You had me at Sunset and Gower. Um, so the, the property had been, uh, we had taken a property, but it was still... We're still building it. So I commuted to Scottsdale. We had a temporary office when we were building the digital stuff up in my old stomping grounds up in Burbank, Glendale. So I was spending about two days a week in Glendale and three days a week in Scottsdale. And we opened this facility 4th of July weekend last year. And, you know, this this, this is my, truly my dream job and my dream environment. And I finally get a place to showcase all of the guitars that I've been acquiring for the last <laughs> that you've stashed away in. 30 years, yeah. <laughs> and there's been a lot more added to the collection, I can I'm tell you, sure. over the last three years. I'm sure. So just by way of uh, bringing some closure to our conversation, lessons in leadership. You know, when you look back, uh, you, I, know, I know it was all about getting the right people on the bus, and now it seems like it's, you know, it's legacy time. So... It's helping other people fulfill their potential. Speak to that a little bit, if you would. Well, you know, if you go all the way back to my, my father was a coal miner, and he wasn't. He was as as most Scottish men are. He wasn't a big talker, but when he said something, it was usually worth listening to. So he used to teach me about life through parables that he would tell me about mining. And one of them was that you always leave the seam that you're working on in better condition than you found it. And for him, that was a matter of life or death. It was, you know, you didn't want to be going from your shift to the preceding shift and finding the finding this seem dangerous or messed up or or filthy or whatever it might be. So it was, you know, it was part um, courtesy, it was part safety. But I always kind of took that to mean because he always had to like, well, what did he really mean when he was saying that? I, I think he he really meant that. You just leave whatever you do in better condition than when you first started. So that's kind of been my my approach. How I do that, how I achieve that, has changed a lot because I used to, for me, it used to be solo. I, I have to do it. Now I realize, no, it's, it's this is a much bigger team thing, and it's really about building the right team and having the team realize their full potential and helping them through whatever they need to work on to help them really you know, can reach their maximum potential. And then in the end, the person who benefits most actually ended up being me. So by focusing less and less on me, <laughs> um, you know, I, I probably benefited more and more. And it's, it's 
just personally so much more fulfilling to kind of to see it really started for me I think when I left Nike because Nike was it was 20 years of a kind of solo me against the world type battle right. but when I joined Disney I was determined that it was going to be uh, a team effort and I think I achieved that turned out to be a little bit of us against the world <laughs> Uh, here, I think, is the kind of the third act is really this. Uh, I was determined that I'm going to leave this in a better place than I found it because the brand is really, really important to me. And it was great crossing the threshold of this company and I was telling them about, you know, my stories from being in a band, my kind of deep passion for the brand, collecting the brand for 30 years. I'm more of a geek than most of the geeks in the company when it comes to the product side, so I can actually help them. So it's just the planets aligned, just time of life, what the brand needed to do, category. It just it just all worked out great. Yeah. If you think back to your younger self, <laughs> and you wanted to write a little note to that person, if I knew then what I knew now, what might you say? Well, you know, that's that's a really interesting question because, you know, there's there's one side of me when I look in the rearview mirror and I go, oh, you know, if I'd have just done X, Y, or Z differently, you know, I could have made, I could have succeeded more, I could have risen faster in the organization, I could have made more money. But, hey, I'm the son of a Scottish coal miner. I've made more money than I ever thought I would possibly make. I, I have absolutely no regrets, and I'm not sure... I'm not sure if my younger self would have paid any attention to any notes my older self would have left anyway. So I think I'm, you know, I'm, I think I'm a more mature, more evolved leader than I was when I was younger, but I wouldn't be who I am. I, w I said I was the renegade when I was young. I like to think I'm the elder statement, statesman now when I'm 63, but I'm not sure I would have changed the renegade because yeah. for me it was part of, my differentiation from, from everybody else who was out there. We make choices. Sometimes we're conscious of those choices. We'd like to think we know what the outcomes are. We don't always have control over the outcomes. So it really behooves us to choose wisely, right? I remember, it, because we spent quite a bit of time at Disney together, we rarely talked about your team because the team was fairly high-functioning. A lot of our chats were more about your relationships collegial and mm -hmm. with Bob or Michael about how to influence them, how to understand what their motivations were. And it, it occurs to me now, just in reflecting on that, that, you know, one of my favorite sayings, how a person does anything is how they do everything, mm -hmm. right? And that, that renegade, that person was, you're always the person who is willing to speak up and often articulating what everyone else was thinking but not saying. Mm -hmm. And you were willing to do that at whatever risk it might take for someone to say, wait a minute, let's cut his head off, right? Because, hey, we're all thinking this. Someone's got to articulate, someone's got to say it. And I think in the end, that actually helped, uh, that coupled with your innovative spirit, helped you really accomplish some extraordinary things in those companies. Yeah, I mean, I think when I, when I look back at my Disney time, I mean, Michael, and I think Bob still has it, he had a Monday staff lunch and there was a circular table and basically the management group got around there. It was very informal kind of information sharing uh, setting. I think if you'd have taken a vote at that time when I first joined or say in the first year, 
who was most likely to get voted off the island, it would have been me, top of the list. The fact that I actually managed to, th I would say, thrive there for 11 years, not survive there necessarily for 11 years, although in some, through some periods when I was in Roy's bad books, it probably was survival. Right. Um, it was sh shocking. It's sh it shocking that I, that, I, that I managed to thrive, survive there that long. The, you know, th the thing that people always have to remember is that, um, you know, a lot of people think, oh, you know, when I, if I become a CEO or if I get hired in an organization, I'm not going to have a boss. You always have a boss. You know, my boss now is, is my board. Right. And, you know, I've got a very high caliber board, um, including people who have been CEO here before me, which is always, that's always a, that can be a very tricky um, situation to navigate. It's not here at all. But, you know, there's two private equity companies on the board. And there's some very high-powered uh, people from both those private equity companies and from, you know, other companies like Apple, you know. Um, and uh, I, ha I have to be more patient with them than I would have otherwise have been in the past because if I'm patient, the whole company benefits. <laughs> You know, it's, it's not, it's not, right. it's not, it's not about me. It's right. about the, the, the yeah. it's about the health of the company. And, and people take cues from the CEO, how you behave, how you carry yourself, how you comport yourself in meetings, in the hallway, in the morning, sends a strong message to everybody else. I appreciate you being patient with me, taking <laughs> some time here on a Wednesday afternoon to sit and chat. It's just been delightful. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure, Teddy. Great to, great to talk to you again. Mm -hmm.